through Alamem, I started to do more writing and sort of feel like, what are my personal goals? What do I want to do and accomplish? I think that being an artist was the most important thing. And I realized that I've learned everything I can really in the industry that would help my art, my work. <laughs> I don't need to be in this industry to do my creative work. And that's my number one thing I want to accomplish. Welcome to episode 388 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Sarah, Kelly, May, Cass, Dennis, Martha, and Elena. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Sarah, Kelly, May, Cass, Dennis, Martha, and Elena for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer. I'm your host today. And joining me today is Lisa. Welcome to The Recovery Show, Lisa. Thank you. I usually ask my guests to bring a reading. Do you have one for us? I actually do. I saw that. This is from Courage to Change, a daily reader, which I absolutely love. It's November 7th on page 312. Alcoholism is a family disease. It affects not only the drinker, but those of us who care about him or her as well. For some of us, much of the thinking that has been passed down from generation to generation has been distorted. By my presence in Al-Anon, I have committed myself to breaking these unhealthy patterns. As I continue to attend meetings, I begin to heal, to find sanity and peace, and to feel much better about myself. I am no longer playing my old role in the alcoholic system, and so the entire family situation begins to change. Ironically, when I give up worrying about everyone else and focus on my own health, I give others the freedom to consider their own recovery. Today's reminder, one person's recovery can have a powerful impact on the whole family. When I take care of myself, I may be doing more than I realize to help loved ones who suffer from this family disease. And from another book called Living with Sobriety, there's a quote that says, if one person gets well, the whole family situation improves. I'm going to take a wild guess and say that reading relates to your story. <laughs> I think that reading probably relates to a lot of our stories. Well, true. <laughs> true indeed. Why don't we start, introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. I came to Alan on about 10 years ago. I was recommended by a therapist that I was seeing. He said that although my dad was not an alcoholic. He sure acted like one. Our family was like a typical alcoholic family, even though there wasn't alcoholism. I went to therapy because I was really desperate to finish some creative projects, and I was having a lot of anxiety, 
lot of physical anxiety in my chest and I'd wake up with panic attacks. I wouldn't necessarily they were crazy panic attacks, but I would wake up with my heart palpitating. So I started going to Al-Anon. I'm curious. Your therapist said Al-Anon might help because even though there's not alcohol in the family, the behavior acts like there is. Is that what I understand? Correct. The therapist actually was in a 12-step program and was very familiar with 12-step. And I went to this therapist not knowing that, just for basic therapy. And as I saw him, he said, I really feel like you grew up in a family which mirrored the alcoholic family dynamic. Even though there wasn't necessarily alcoholism, there was a lot of behavior and patterns and dysfunction that were very alcoholic. I have met many people who are coming into their first or second or third Al-Anon meeting. And they say, I don't really know why I'm here. I can't identify alcoholism in my family, but I feel like I identify with what I hear here. What I'm wondering is whether you had that feeling or because the therapist said, You've got this alcoholic dynamic that you felt like you qualified. Can you unpack that for me a little bit? I'll tell you something. I was just desperate because I wasn't happy. I wasn't feeling like I was achieving goals that I had set up for myself. I had these big goals and I was just desperate to feel better. I knew I wasn't living my full life and had a lot of fear. And I just think I was desperate. So I was willing to try whatever. I didn't make the connection between what the therapist was saying, there's an alcoholic dynamic and this will help you. I was just like, you're telling me to go do this. So I'll just give it a try because I really, at this point, if you told me to go read a bunch of poetry or read these books or go meditate on the beach, whatever, I was just so desperate. I would just do whatever. What did you find when you came to Elanon? When I walked into the room and I started hearing people talk, I, I immediately felt very comfortable. It was like, I really connected to what people's, their stories and what they were saying. I had a faint memory of five years ago going to an Al-Anon meeting with a friend up in Marin County. I remember going, wow, even though I'm not an alcoholic or I don't know people who are alcoholics or alcoholism is not a part of my life, I just feel really like these are my people. <laughs> and I forgot about it and I never went back to a meeting. And then when the therapist said, and then I went to the meeting, I remembered th that experience. And mm. when I went in, I really felt really comfortable. I got some advice beforehand, which was try to not worry so much about the word alcohol. You can substitute it with people's behavior, just people who are acting crazy. You can substitute it with mental illness. But anyway, so when I was there, I just felt really felt very safe and comfortable. And I immediately started crying. Like everyone started talking and I started crying. And then someone talked and I start crying. And then I felt comfortable talking, but then I'd start talking and then I'd start crying. So I was crying. I went to a good meeting. It was mostly women and they like had about anywhere from 30 to 45, 50 years, many years of experience. These were the hardliners. They definitely had a certain way that they were doing their Aladon program. Mm. But I felt really comfortable. And I felt really safe. About half of them were long timers. And then there was other people who were younger, newcomers, and a few men. But I really related to the old timers. Like those were the women that I immediately felt very connected to. 
the younger people, the people my age, I listened to them and they seemed interesting. But these older women, I just loved. You know, they'd laugh about things that just seemed like, oh my God, that's crazy. And then they just started laughing about it. They were very funny. I remember in my first meeting, there were a couple of women who had been there for a long time that I get that same vibe. Not 30 or 40 years, I think, at the the time I came in, maybe 20. But that seemed like forever to me. So yeah, I I understand what you're talking about. It didn't scare me at all. Because, oh, they've been there that long. I thought, okay, that's fine. As long as people are happy and this is making them happy or this is helping them. I know that some people think, oh, I'm going to go to a meeting or one meeting or two meetings and that's it or be in the program for a year. And 12 steps, I don't know, 12 I months. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't look at it that way. I guess to be honest, I came to Los Angeles and I had big dreams of I want to write a screenplay. I want to do all these things. And since I, I felt like I wasn't achieving them, I thought that going to these meetings would help me achieve them. So I <laughs> had this ulterior motive. All right. I, I, you weren't going to get your alcoholic loved ones sober. You were going to achieve your goals. Yes, that was probably the main reason. And then the second reason is that there's all these people around me that were driving me crazy. But it was more like the ego part of the traditions, like money, power, fame. Yeah. Something like that. I was stuck in that route. Okay. So there you are in your first meeting, your first few meetings, you're crying. What happened? You're Obviously, you're still here. It's been a few years now, a few 24 hours, as we say, right? You found something that keeps you coming back. First of all, I liked the people there. I knew that after each meeting, I felt better. I started to feel better after I went to the meetings. Also, I really loved people talking. They were talking about the truth of their lives. (laughs) And they were really sharing stories that were very deep. Mothers whose children had died of heroin. People came in with their parents, just got arrested. I mean, just stuff that was really dark, but it was also, they were just talking about the truth, about their childhoods and everything. And I felt like at the time, I was not surrounded by people who were really sharing truthful experiences and speaking raw emotion, and somehow I was craving it. So Mm -hmm. I just kept coming back probably for that, and that I knew I was feeling better, and that there were people around me who were encouraging me to keep going on the meeting. So when I first started, I had that anxiety in my chest, like I'd wake up in the morning and I'd have this anxiety. And I didn't think I would get rid of that. I just thought I'd like to somehow manage it or something. But I got a sponsor after a year. And then I started working the steps in a way that I can explain, which is really was really helpful to me. We do an inventory. But after doing the steps... Working with her for probably another year, so it was about two years. I woke up one morning and I didn't have that anxiety in my chest. And then the next day, I didn't have anxiety in my chest. And now it's been eight years since I started about 10 years ago. I say I have about maybe five to 10% of that anxiety. It's almost all entirely gone. That's where it was a higher power miracle yeah. that just took it away. 
when I lead meetings, I always say, I started this way with this anxiety and then two years, it just went away. And I didn't even really work the program, honestly. I just went to meetings. I talked to my sponsor. I did these exercises that she told me, but I never felt like I was fully committed at all. I was really like, yeah, I just go. It's cheaper than therapy. I feel better. I was just like, okay, whatever. And then it was maybe like three or four years into it. I was like, okay, maybe I won't go this week or we'll go for a couple of weeks. And I started to see not that my anxiety came back, but I started to have some of that obsessive thinking that I was having, some of the paranoia, judgmentalness, superiority, like all the stuff that that I've identified as my character defects and uh, focusing on a family member. There was one family member that I would just focus on and want to help and take care of and change. When I wasn't going to meetings, I noticed that I would focus on that family member. So, yeah, I don't know if I answered your question. Did I have a question? I feel like as a filmmaker, I'm listening. I'm like, am I saying the right soundbite? Am I like saying the things you want? And that's like total Al-Anon trying to control what I'm saying to you. What I want is your truth. Yeah. <laughs> which generally doesn't come in sound bites, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. You briefly t- mentioned it, your sponsor had a way of working the steps. Can you talk about that a little? Yes, I love this. This is the only way I've worked the steps. She has me do an inventory. Apparently the inventory has been around for a really long time. It's nothing new. It's not something she made up. I think they do this also in AA. And it's basically a writing exercise. And I write on a piece of paper, Dear God, please guide my pen. Then I write, who or what is bothering me? Then I write, answer that. What is the cause? I answer that. What is the effect? Answer that. What is my part? I answer that. And what is the solution? Then I write that. This process, this writing process has been a lifesaver and is what really I think uh, is what's really helped my recovery the most it, after going to meetings. Mm-hmm. So you use this on a regular basis? I try. Not, I'm not great sure. at it. I don't sure. always do it. But with times I've done it, it's my sponsor asked me to do the writing before I call her. But the time when I realized how helpful that writing processes. I was really having a hard time. I was really upset. I just had a lot of anxiety. I think this is probably before my anxiety went away. It was like in the first two years. First year, I just went to meetings. The second year is when I got my sponsor and then I worked this program. So probably towards the end of that second year, I was having a lot of anxiety. So I went to this grave site that I go to (laughs) that I like to visit, Billy Wilder's grave. Here in okay. Los Angeles, <laughs> I am a writer, so I like to go to that grave. I kind of gives me relief, and I write. Uh-huh. And then I started to do this exercise. Dear God, please guide my pen. I wrote a book. As I started writing, I thought, what is my part? And I wrote, I want to be important. Ooh. And then I don't remember what the solution is at that moment, but I burst into tears. I started crying. I was sobbing. And I called my sponsor. And the miracle is she was available and she answered the phone. And we talked for an hour, uh-huh. sobbing, 
sitting in this graveyard. I guess if somebody sees you, like you're sitting in a graveyard and crying, like, that's not unusual. <laughs> Probably not, no. But um, you weren't even thinking about that, were you? No, I was thinking about this core fundamental part of myself that was, I felt ashamed of, that I knew was the truth, that I was angry about, that I didn't understand why I had it, but I thought it was something that I thought maybe could help me. Or I don't know. I was just crying. I was in the middle of this, oh my God, it was an aha moment. And so I talked to her for an hour and that was a huge breakthrough. That was like one of my first big breakthroughs where yeah, I go, okay, this is one of my huge character defects. And what it made me realize is one of the things I had been doing that was probably annoying other people, but was problematic for me was like always trying to prove myself in every conversation and every, in a lot of interactions at work, in family to prove that I was worthy and that I was important. Been there. You know, yeah. So it's like, I'm saying to somebody like, oh yeah, I just got this job. I'm working here. It's like, oh, I know why I said that to that person <laughs> because I want to be important. <laughs> or it was, it's like, why am I trying to go shopping and wear these pretty clothes? Oh, because I want to be important. So it was like the nugget of what everything I was doing. And then we talked about why do I want to feel important? Why is that so important? I think that, that for some reason on some level, I didn't feel important. Obviously, I didn't feel like what I had to say mattered or that I was embarrassed or ashamed. And I had to keep proving myself because just me alone as a human being on this planet was not enough. For some reason, I had that fundamental belief or it was in there somewhere hurting me. The beginning you write, uh, God guide my pen. Do you feel dear like God. that? Dear God. Yes, dear God. Please guide my pen. Do you feel like that's what happened there? Oh, yeah. When you got to that question, that was not what you were intending to write? A hundred percent. That was a higher power God moment. And that's why that exercise is so powerful. I think you bring God into the equation. You bring God into the writing. My sponsor always wants me to write by hand. Mm-hmm. And it works every time, every time I've done it. it. And you don't always get like the goal. You think I'm writing this and then I'm going to get a solution at the end. Sometimes you don't get a solution. What is the solution to I want to feel important? Is that what? Wait, the solution, if I look at the steps, the solution is step six and seven. God, please help me with this because I can't fix that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So you think you're going to get this prize at the end, but not necessarily. Sometimes you just get awareness because we in Al-Anon have a great slogans, awareness, acceptance, and action. Sometimes you just get awareness. Mm-hmm. Something comes from that exercise. I've worked the steps three times now with this book, Paths of Recovery. And in the reading for, I don't remember if it's step four or step five, it says, some people ask questions, I write out my inventory. And my answer for that comes back to exactly what happened to you, which is that when I start writing, I don't always know what's going to come out at the end of the pen. And sometimes I'm very surprised at what comes out at the end of the pen. I didn't know that was in me until I started writing it. For me, I spend eight hours a day on a keyboard. The act of writing on paper with a pen is very different. It feels very different. Partly, I can't hit the backspace. You know, whatever comes out, comes out. 
And if I really don't like it, I can cross it off, but it's still there on the paper. And I think that's important to me when I'm trying to get at some truth about myself that I don't even know yet. Does that make sense? Yes. Are you saying that the difference between writing by pen versus writing by computer or? Writing versus thinking is the big Mm -hmm. dichotomy. Okay. Mm -hmm. I look at a question, an inventory question, and if I answer it in my head, Mm -hmm. my answer is generally superficial and doesn't really get at the truth. I think one of the important things is getting it outside my head. So maybe if I was one of these people who carried around a digital recorder and just recorded my thoughts all the time, maybe that would work the same way. But for me, it's writing. And writing in such a way that I have to be intentional about changing what I've written once I've written it. Because on a computer, it's so easy to change it, right? Yeah. With a pencil, I can erase. But with a pen, it becomes obvious that I said something and then I decided I didn't want to say it. And why did I not want to say it? So I really feel like there is something central to, at least for me, the the inventory work. I agree with you, yeah. Yeah. So you said you had another story. Oh, I, w- I just want to say that too, is that my sponsor says keep writing because it's like a free flow writing exercise. If you're going to do this inventory, the same topic or the same thing that's upsetting you or the same thing you want to write about may come up in the next, you know, day or a week or may come up again. So you do the inventory again. So you just keep doing it. You don't stop. And when we're done with the inventory, I will read it to my sponsor. First, we'll say a prayer and then I'll read it to her and then she'll give me feedback and then... She has me rip it up, which is so hard. (laughs) First, she says, are you ready to let go of this just for today? And I I have to say, yeah, okay, (laughs) just for today. I say, okay. And then she has me rip it up. And then we say another prayer at the end. Ripping it up is hard because I've written a lot and I've said a lot and I'm a writer. So I like to keep everything, but we have to rip it up and let it go just for today. That's the process. I want to show you something. This isn't going to come through on the podcast, but these are my inventories while they're my writing through the steps. So uh, for those of you who don't have a camera and can't see what I just showed, Lisa, I have these nice bound journals. They have pretty pictures on the outside. They're nice paper. And this is what, as I was working the steps through that book, Paths to Recovery, which has questions for every step, I would write out my answer to each of those questions in these books. And I got the fancy book because I felt like the work I was doing was important and I didn't want to just put it in a spiral-bound school notebook kind of thing. That was me. And so the thought of, wow, writing it out and then ripping it up, that ooh, that's difficult. Well, Spencer, I have a question for you then. Yeah. Do you ever go back and read those inventories that you haven't torn up? I have done that. I have done that. And usually I do it when I'm working that step again. Okay. Or when I'm looking to see, hey, have I made progress? That's what it's for. But also, this is one of those things that I think I learned at my mother's knee, if you will. She kept journals 
She kept sketchbooks that she would also write in what was happening and pictures of what was going on for, I think, basically her whole life. We found a bunch of them as we were cleaning out my parents' house to prepare it for sale. So I I think I probably saw her doing that. I don't believe I was really consciously aware to the extent that she did it. But I think that I learned early on that keeping my memories, keeping those things was somehow important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's really hard to tear up that writing. And I have done journaling and I have a lot of different notebooks and mm-hmm. I've tried to go back to them and read them. And I personally, like I cringe at what I've written Okay, and I feel really embarrassed and ashamed. But I don't want to throw them away, but I also haven't really been able to look at them. I'm a little definitely different than you in that sense where you can read them and kind of say, oh, where am I? And I look at them like, oh, God, I said that. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. Oh, I'm obsessed with that guy. Oh, gosh, what did I do? Or the other thing is I'm still on that same track, like still angry about that thing that happened 20 years ago. And that was 20 years ago, right. and then I read it again 10 years ago, and now I'm still thinking about it. Oh, I just, so, I don't know. I Recently, I put all my notebooks and all my writing, and I tried to put them all in one box, mm-hmm. at least because everything was scattered all over the house or whatever. So, I put them all together, and I think my plan is to just disorganize it. Maybe I'll go back and look. I don't know. Maybe not. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Here's the story I wanted to tell you, which I do tell when I lead a meeting, when I'm talking about writing. Which was my dad said that he had something to tell me and my sister. This is about 10 years ago. He was like 71 at the time. So I have something to tell you and your sister, and I need about three hours. And <laughs> okay, so what feelings does that bring up right away? I'm like, oh my God, like, why do you need three hours? And my dad famously needs two minutes. I'm getting a divorce. There was a suicide in my office, not a lot of conversations. But my dad said, it's not financial. You don't have to worry. I'm not ill. I don't have any kind of illness, but it would be great if you and your sister can come up to the Bay Area and I can have three hours. So of course, I'm annoyed. I'm like, why do you need three hours to to talk to us? And, and why do you need me there? And Yeah, yeah. So I started writing my dad an email, trying to figure out what this was about, trying to assess whether I needed to have this conversation. And I wrote to my dad and tried to be funny because that's the best way to relate to my dad. And I said, oh, why do you need three hours? And I'm trying to be funny. So I wrote, are you running away with a circus? Are you becoming a saint and moving to a far-off country? And then I wrote, are you getting a sex change operation? And in that moment, I was like, I don't think that's that funny. And that could be true. So I deleted it and I wrote something else, which was not as funny as the other ones that weren't funny at all. Nothing in it was funny, but I replaced it with another off-color joke. And then I kept thinking about it. Now, my dad was very handsome, very masculine, played rugby, landscape architect, married three times. This was nothing that was in my brain, my conscious mind. 
until I did the writing. And then when I met with my dad and my sister met with my dad, told us, I have a condition called gender dysphoria. I know this was 10 years ago. So it was before Caitlyn Jenner. It was before all this, the transgenders hit the zeitgeist. So that was like another moment where I thought, wow, this writing, writing something down with the intention to understand, you know, can really open up your subconscious mind and you can get the information you need and you want. That was something that really opened my eyes to why writing can really help you to understand things you need to know. Because in your writing, you actually hit pretty close to what he wanted to talk about, even though you didn't. At the moment you wrote it, you didn't think that was anywhere near the truth. But then you said, oh, wait, it could be. While I was writing it, I thought it was a joke. I thought, I'm just joking. And then after I wrote it, came to the final, are you getting a sex change operation? And then I, it hit me. And by the way, sex change operation is not what we call it, but that's in my naivety. It's what I, only thing I said. Okay. I'm just going to take a breath for a minute here. When I asked you if you would be interested in coming on the podcast, you had spoken briefly, I think, about how working the Al-Anon program, working the steps, was helping you as you're working, and you've hinted at this a few times, but you're working in the entertainment industry, film and TV. I haven't been there personally, but I'm going to guess there are a lot of, say, dysfunctional personalities in that industry. And I thought, wow, yeah. How is it working your program, working the principles of the program, the tools of the program, when you're, I don't know, surrounded? Is that too strong a word? By those sorts of personalities, the egos, the... You're shaking your head. Okay. (laughs) I'm shaking my head, yes. Yeah, I know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, surrounded is a good word for sure. Yeah. I would say that for for people who haven't worked in the entertainment industry, a lot of us work on a project-to-project basis, and we create many families. There's like little families, and they're very intense. So you're working on a project, and it's very intense. You're working on a project. You're working on a show, and you start in January, let's say, and it's done in November. You're working incredible hours. A lot of times you're working with people you haven't worked with before because the crew changes, the the leaders change, because we go from show to show and sometimes people are not available. You're picking projects based on your availability, your interest in that subject, the location, all that stuff. Like mm-hmm. you're, you're choosing different projects. So a lot of times mm-hmm. you're working with people you don't know. Immediately you have to prove yourself. <laughs> I want to jump back to the project working team group whatever as family notion that you put out because what it makes me think of is the difference between for most of us family of origin and family of choice those are terms that i've heard in the rooms and that my recovery family is a family of choice i had no choice who I was born to. I had no choice who my siblings were. And if we don't get along, if we have dysfunction, I just have to deal or leave. And then when you talk about, okay, you're forming this new group, 
for each project and you're working very intensely together. And you, I think, deliberately used the word family there. Now we're back in the family of no choice, right? These are the people that I have to get along with. These are the people that I have to spend most of my waking hours with. This is what it sounds like from what you're saying. And if there's dysfunction, I'm going to have to deal with it, right? Correct. Yep. Oh, boy. Lots of dysfunctional families, one after the other. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Hollywood has a big reputation. Everyone knows about it. It's a lot of drugs, a lot of egos, a lot of competition, a lot of money. There's a lot of expectations. And a lot when you have creative ideas in the mix, that could be very subjective. So it's not like your accountant where the numbers add up and then it's a certain number at the end. And this, it's like you could do a project and it could be accomplished in many different ways. So there's a lot of fear sometimes where people are not doing the project the right way or whatever. So anyway, yes, it becomes a family dynamic. And I think there's probably a third one now because you have the family of origin where you're born into. There's no choice. Then there's the family of choice, which can be your Al-Anon family. It can be close friends. But this one is like, it's in between a little bit Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. if you really hate it, you can leave. If you leave, then you could have a reputation or you could get in trouble or whatever. And in the past, my people pleasing and my fear of wanting to be like would get in the way of me setting boundaries mm-hmm. with people who wanted to just suck the life out of you and make you work 18-hour days and all that stuff. It wasn't always my experience. I've had really good experience with I'm really sure. good people. Yeah. So I've had the good working family and the not-so-good working family. I, I get what you're saying. I'm one of these people that doesn't like change. I would like not thrive in in that kind of industry. There are people in my industry, I'm, I do software development, and there are people in my industry who work for a consulting firm or maybe work for themselves and have gigs. And the gig might last six months, it might last two years, and then they leave and they go on to something else. And that kind of is what it sounds like here, except more intense. But even in my stable context, people come and people go. And I had a situation in my working team, which we'll say eight people, where a new person came in, everybody agreed that this person had skills we wanted, that we could work with him. And he obviously wanted to work with us. Turns out there was some severe personality mismatches in the team. And three people left. Mm. One quit the company altogether, two moved to other teams within the organization and actually sort of a promotion. So that was good for them. But I saw that as a direct consequence of the personality conflict that that we didn't see coming and that I, as the team lead, was not skilled enough to mitigate. And maybe I couldn't have, and maybe I'm kicking myself because this is just something that I I really couldn't have dealt with at all. I don't know. Even in that context that this kind of thing happens. In our program, we're encouraged to focus on ourselves, And so I tried to not take it home too much, not take it personally too much. Obviously, I still feel that there was personal failure there. But yeah, even not in, in the kind of situation you're talking about, it can happen. 
It's interesting because of these projects, you don't know when you hire somebody. So I've been on the hiring end. I've been on the being hired end. And you just don't know until you start working with someone. And then you don't know until you get into some of the, the intensity of mm-hmm. what these projects involve. And then you see how people deal under stress. So people do try to hire people that they know over and over again. In one company in particular that I went to work for, it was such an alcoholic environment to me. The owners of the company seemed like they were alcoholics. They had one main person that worked under them, which seemed like a codependent son. The other people working, I could see how they would thrive in this sort of chaos and some of the conflict. Mm -hmm. And there were the people who were trying to solve it. And there was a lot of gossiping going on behind the scenes. And the people pleasers, I just, I divided it all up in my mind. Okay, these are more of the alcoholic type people. These are the more Al-Anon type people. And that helped me to deal with the situation and help my recovery apply principles and stuff like, oh, okay, so I'm going to deal with these alcoholic people, even though they're my boss or bosses, I'm going to use my tools with them just like I would was a family member as best as I could mm-hmm. and practice. I just use it like, okay, I'm just going to practice. I wonder what is going to happen if I set this boundary. Sorry, I can't work till midnight tonight, you know, and just see what happens, practice that. And then I started to just have a much more lighthearted point of view. I didn't know that it was this environment when I walked into yeah. this job. Yeah. You don't know. You don't know. No one should get mad at themselves and they go, oh, I should have known. It was like, these people are crazy. Because they're not showing you that when they're hiring you, are they? No. And a lot of people are not aware of the, sometimes you say, oh, it's kind of a little weird place to work, but every place is weird. You don't know. And then you get there and then you have to just decide, do I want to stay here? Is this healthy for me? And as I've been now for 10 years and been working the program and applying these principles to my work and to the industry that I'm working in, I've been able to set more and more boundaries and make choices that are just better for me, like what jobs I take. For example, during COVID, even before COVID happened, I started working from home and was doing more and more remote work. I was getting jobs that were paying a little bit less. But I was so much happier and so much better than during COVID. The first year, people in the industry mostly were working remotely or things shut down. Mm-hmm. And then people started going back into doing production and not wearing masks or whatever. Like there was all this kind of bad boundaries in terms of the health and safety of people. And I said, no, I'm not doing that. I am, I'm going to continue working remotely and take jobs and they pay less. And also they're a much lower title. I worked myself up to show running and I just made a conscious choice that I was going to put my health and my recovery before the status and feeling important. Mm. There we are again. <laughs> and also I wanted to work I am working on some of my own personal projects. So the idea that I could work from home, but I'll tell you, I've been able to set boundaries and probably be a better worker from home because I'm not in physically around that energy that is toxic to me. And one of our tools, I don't know that it's like really laid out as a tool, but the self-awareness, what is it that I need? (laughs) Not what is it that I want? Because... It's often easy to identify things that I want out of life, out of a job, 
mm. out of my relationships. But what do I need is a lot harder question to answer. When it gets hard for me, when it gets bad, is when what I need does not align with what I think I want. Yeah. And so what I hear you saying is you started to get that clarity about the things that you need to have in order to live a life with self-respect, with serenity, with happiness. It's more manageable. And what manageable, there we go. What things you need in order to have that life and how they can be in conflict with what you think you want. I also think what happened is through Alan and I started to do more writing and sort of feel like, what are my personal goals? What do I want to do and accomplish? I think that being an artist was the most important thing. And I realized that I've learned everything I can really in the industry that would help my art, my work. <laughs> I don't need to be in this industry to do my creative work. And that's my number one thing I want to accomplish. I need to do that at home. I need to be in a peaceful environment. I need to not be caught in my head if this person likes me. Do they like my project I just did for them? Were they mad at me because I was work late or whatever? Mm -hmm. Or I said something weird that I was obsessing about. So what I realized is that nothing is more important than my serenity, honestly, and my peace. Now that a big difference is if this is so bad, I will just walk away. If I have that now in my head, whereas 10 years ago, I was too worried that people were going to hate me and not like me. I was worried about where am I ever going to get a job again? Now I'm like, I'd rather live really cheap and have serenity. I'm not trying to make it in Hollywood as a worker. Mm -hmm. For hire, I'm really trying to do my own artist work. I think it's a higher power gift. Like, remember what you're doing, not what they want you to do for them. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. And I'm thinking about the difference between living to work and working to live. Yeah. I know too many people who live so they can work. And the work is not fulfilling, but it's what they feel they have to do. I'm fortunate that the work that I do that provides the, the income and the status, okay, I'll admit to that, is also what I like to do. I feel very fortunate in that my brother is a writer. He's a poet. And there are very few people who are able to make a living at that. And especially as a spoken word poet, which is where he landed the last 20 or 30 years of his life. And so he worked so he could live. And he took the jobs that he needed to take so he could have some income, so he could be a poet. You know, I think one thing is that we're in Al-Anon, and a lot of times we talk about our family of choice, and those are our friends or our Al-Anon people that we've come to know and love and support, and we all speak the same language. And then there's the dynamics of an alcoholic family, and that's something you were born into. You can stay, you can leave if you want, but there's a work dynamic that is for most people who have to work that mirror the alcoholic family dynamic. And that's where these tools and our recovery is really helpful because so many people 
spend so much time at work and it's such a source of, can be a source of pain and struggle. I can give examples like I'm shooting on set and I'm directing and then everybody goes out and drinks after work. And I don't do that. I go home, I'm preparing for the next day. Mm-hmm. And the next day everyone arrives and they're all hungover. Or that's a very black and white kind of example. Right. But then there's also the example of I'm working on projects where there's like some kinds of gossip happening or people are not being straightforward. They're giving erratic kind of direction, changing their minds a lot. And that's crazy making. And it triggers me and my Al-Anon isms, which are a lot of fear and paranoia and obsession. Did I say the right thing? Are they going to fire me? Am I going to keep this job? You know, all that kind of stuff. I have to use my tools. Somebody gave me some good advice. It was an Al-Anon advice. They said, probably the work you do when you go project to project and when you're hiring people is just to find like the healthiest people you can find. (laughs) And you don't always know that when you're hiring people. I've had really good environments and work experience. And usually those people are just really stable, healthy, good people. You have personal conversations because you're working so many hours. You find out they're in therapy. You find out they're... Those tend to be like actually good work experiences. And then there's work experiences where you're on a project and the whole thing is just like nuts. Those are toxic and I get triggered. And so one of my tools is I really try my best not to put myself in those environments. So what I do is I call ahead. Hey, do you know those people? Have you worked with them before? I do a lot of vetting before I take a project. Now that I'm working from home, I don't get as freaked out. And there's not like a social culture that is triggering me. It's not just, oh, I can go to meetings and then go work in these alcoholic environments and be okay. That doesn't work for me. I have to actually do something that's a little part of the Al-Anon recovery is I can't take that job because I've worked there before. And even though they're offering me a lot of money, I'll spend six months working and I'll spend another six months recovering. I'll have to go to Al-Anon meetings every day. I'll have to... Twice um, a day. (laughs) Twice a day. I'll have to get extra massages or whatever, like extra self-care and stuff. And it's going to take too much time to recover. I'm just getting more and more picky. And it comes with more confidence, too, that... I don't need to prove myself to be a loving, valuable person in this world. Sometimes I don't work for three or four months and people say, what are you doing? And in the past, I'm like, oh, I was on this project and now I'm going on to this show, but it's not happening for a little while. Like I had to prove myself and now I'm just like, yeah, I'm just just walking my dog, having some eggs for breakfast and I'm going to do some writing this morning. Maybe I'll not do some writing. I'll try. It's not like I'm on this fancy network show. We're working 18 hour days. It's crazy, but I love it. No, that's not for me. I've also gotten some taste of some information that's reality. And these are facts. The facts are that in the DGA the ADs, the assistant directors, their average death rate is 50 years old. Who? There's accidents happening when people are driving home from set late at night Mm. because they can't say no. They're being forced to work late. There's people getting tons and tons of therapy. 
in scripted TV, this is getting really specific, but it's there's more unions and more protection. It's still really tough. But in where I work, it's non-unions and people, it's not healthy. It's not a healthy environment. Yeah. Some of the tools that I heard you talking about were knowing what you need, knowing what is not good for you, this clarity that comes out of doing inventories and, and coming to know yourself and coming to know what you want and what you need. And then setting boundaries sounds like it's a huge thing for you. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Is there another tool that I missed? Let me think about that awareness. Like, oh, that person said this. I wrote it down in my notebook. They wanted me to do this. And then they didn't come to me and say, I changed my mind. I'd like you to do something different. But they get mad when I do what they told me to do. Okay. That's crazy. It's a little bit of gaslighting. And so awareness is, oh, okay. So this person is a mad alcoholic type personality. So I have to be in acceptance. Like I'm working in that environment and I can't take it personally. I have to pray. I have to meditate. I have to set boundaries and I have to accept that they could yell at me. They could talk behind my back and I can either stay or I can go. Like being empowered to, to know that, oh, okay, this is what I'm dealing with. So that's another tool. I know a lot of people can say, I want to leave this job. And I didn't feel like that when I started. So I lived in a lot of anxiety and fear trying to build my career, my place in this industry. I did meet a couple other people in Al-Anon who were in the industry and we would talk through things and reason things out and work the program as if the family dynamic of alcoholism, applying it to the workplace. I lived in the industry probably for about 17 years professionally. And 10 years of it have been in Al-Anon. So the first seven were a different situation where I, you know, I would do what people said. I wasn't going to rock the boat. I wanted to make my reputation. I wanted to learn things. I was enjoying a lot of it. Sometimes it wasn't enjoyable. And then when I got into Al-Anon, I noticed that people didn't like me as much because it was like, when you stop people pleasing, people stop being pleased. I think that in dealing with the people like you do and uh, work environment, TV production. I think for us, there's two things. It's like people work together because they all like each other and they get along and then they go out and they, they have an alcoholic family relationship or this kind of parent, child, unconscious, subconscious kind of relationship hmm. that's going on between the people in the business. And so the people who are there difficult and you're in that environment and then you go back to an LLM meeting, then you go to work and you apply your principles. Sometimes you don't feel like you can quit. You can set boundaries in a kind way and know they may not like you. So I think that just practicing that skill, setting my boundary, saying what is right or what I feel is kind, but loving or whatever's not working in this project or in the dynamics with the group, and then I would immediately feel fear. There was no question. I'd feel fear. My heart would start beating really fast. But I would practice it. And then as an Al-Anon person, I'm looking at them. Are they going to like it? Are they going to hate me? Reading the room, listening to the tone of voice, then leaving the meeting, thinking, oh my God, it's awful. I'm going to die. And then going to a meeting and then being comforted by the love in the meeting 
had people sharing their stories. Yeah, I did something like that. And this is how it happens. They were fine. They didn't care. Because a lot of times what I realize is I am really projecting a lot of my own fear on them. And they're used to people saying what they think. And actually, after they leave meeting, they're so busy, they're thinking about something else. That's what right. I learned. But saying those things out loud and setting your boundaries was so hard. And it still is hard. But it's a little bit easier for two reasons, because I have more practice. Because I know that immediately after I might bookend that with calling somebody or going to a meeting, reading some literature, I have a couple other friends in this industry that I can talk to. And the other thing is, at least for the last three years, I have been working remotely. So I have this sort of protection, which has added another layer for me. Maybe somebody else can't have that. They can't work from home or have that kind of protection, but they can go on a walk and just get out of the environment. They can make a phone call. There's a lot of things you can do while you're in the office. You know, it's definitely been a process for me. People have seen a lot of difference in me and the way I interact with people. Also, I took a job that's not as hard, so I feel a lot more confident in my work. So I'm more able to say, no, I don't think it's going to go well. I don't think we should do it this way. I should do it that way. And whether they know it or not, I know I'm doing my best and giving the best. And I feel like I'm important. I feel good. I feel confident. So there's just some adjustments I made. I don't think that's right for everybody, but that's what I did. Thank you for your time today. And let's take a breath. Let's talk about your song, first song that you chose to go along with your story. You've Got a Friend by Carol King. I mean, who doesn't love You've Got a Friend by Carol King? <laughs> I chose this song because I think of sponsorship. When you have that one person that you can talk to who loves you unconditionally, who's guiding you, who can be there for you. My, my sponsor has been incredible. She's been my sponsor now for nine years. She's a sponsor, but she's also a friend. And I've learned so much from her. She's just been unconditional and loving. So You've Got a Friend to Me represents the purity and loving, unconditional love of sponsorship and having a sponsor. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. How have we experienced recovery recently? I was thinking about this. I'm actually recording some episodes back to back. So I'm like, okay, what else did I do that I didn't talk about last time? <laughs> One of the places in my life where I have had fear and anxiety for a long time is around money, around finances. We're pretty comfortable now, but there was a time when we struggled. And when I say struggle, I mean, we struggled under a fairly large mountain of consumer debt. I think it got up to half my annual income or something crazy like that. So some of that anxiety and fear comes from some reality, but also came from not taking care of things appropriately. So we've dug out of that and we're okay. And now there's some new anxiety coming because I'm actually looking at retirement in the next couple of years. And as, as my wife said to me today, she said, you know, I'm going to have to figure out how to change my thinking about our finances when we move from saving to spending. That money that we've been putting aside for years and years for retirement, now we're going to start spending it. And we're kind of in a preview of that because 
Another thing that we plan to do in the next few years is sell the house that we've been living in for more than 30 years. It needs some work. You defer maintenance because you can live with it for a while. But when you're going to sell it, you want to present an attractive package to the buyer. So we have to spend some money on things like landscaping and repairing parts of the house that are not in good shape. And every single one of these things costs money. So now there's anxiety about how much we're going to be spending on the landscaping, how much we're spending to repair the deck that I put on the house 30 years ago. And hey, some of the boards have rotted out in 30 years. Is that a surprise when I live in Michigan, which is a fairly wet climate? Probably not. But you know, you, you don't think about that. So we got this guy who's doing the work for us on the deck. We identified where there were rotten boards that needed to be replaced. And he went out and spent a thousand bucks on lumber and stuff. And then as he gets into it, we find that, in fact, there's more that needs to be replaced than we thought. And I'm like, oh, how much is it going to, it's going to cost, it's going to cost more. Oh no. And we're paying him by the hour. So there's that anxiety. But I know how to sit take a breath, quiet my mind, move into acceptance of what is, and acceptance that we can afford this. It's just when I start seeing bills that have four and five digits on them, I get anxious. So I come back to acceptance, and acceptance has been like this huge tool for me over the last several years. There's been so much going on that is totally out of my control. Being able to say, yeah, this is what it is. We've enjoyed this thing for 30 years, and now it needs some maintenance, and we're going to have to do what we need to do, and that's okay. But I have to go through that process of understanding that this is what has to happen and that we can do it, because my anxiety can say to me, <laughs> you can't do it. This is awful. It's not awful. It's okay. I think that's a place in my life right now where there's been a lot of stress in my life over the last couple of years. If you followed the podcast and I don't need to repeat all the things that happened and just having that background probably ramps things up a little bit too. I know I'm okay and I know I'm going to be okay. So that's how am I using recovery in my life recently? How about you? Thanks, Spencer. That was a really great story, an example of recovery. I loved that. This week, I just did something I was really proud of this week, and it really paid off. Something I might not have done in the past, that was an aha moment that I feel like I could share. I did an assignment, and my boss was not happy with the assignment. I got one of those calls mm -hmm. on the phone, which you don't get very often, <laughs> but I did, which was, I'm very concerned. We've been talking about this for a really long time and you don't seem to be getting it. I was not defensive. I didn't act angry. I wanted to explain why I'd done the project the way I had done it. The truth is that she had given me a lot of information and she wanted all this information I thought into this project. And, you know, she didn't. And I just took it into a different direction. Two things I did that I thought really showed good recoveries in the call. I was 
introducing the tool of honesty, which a lot of people don't do in work. <laughs> and I said, the truth is that I wasn't using my own instincts. I was trying to please you. I thought you wanted something different. I thought I understood that you wanted something. So I was really trying to second guess what you wanted. And I wasn't using my instincts. And she said, well, that's not what I want, blah, blah. I felt like she was going to take me off this particular assignment. I think that's what she wanted to do. And I just listened. Just give me until Friday. It was Wednesday evening. It's just give me till Friday. I will clean it up. I will make it the way you want. And she said, well, I don't know. It's so much work. And I said, listen, I really feel that I can do it because I did. And I felt like if she gave it to somebody else, it's going to take weeks. You know, just give me two days get it closer at least to what you want. Because honestly, I didn't want another person going through it. And then this was the people pleasing, protecting myself thing. I didn't want them to be like, oh my God, this is awful. Lisa, Diana, blah, blah, blah. And then just reveling it. I wanted to give my last shot. So I actually convinced her to give me the two days. I know she didn't want to because she's freaking out because she has her own deadlines and needs to get this particular part of the project done. I said, look, I really think I know what you need. We've been working together for a little while. Just give me this. And I never have done that before. And I think that's an example of how this program has worked for me because I had the confidence mm-hmm. to do that. But anyway, yeah. I stayed up really late on Wednesday night. I stayed up really late on Thursday. I worked and hustled. And we had a private screening of it, just me and her on Friday. And it was so much better and so much closer I was just like, I'm so glad I did that. And she was so much happier. And I would never have been able to do that without Al-Anon recovery to have the confidence. I would have just gone, oh, she hates it. And I won't be able to do a good job. Or I just didn't have the confidence to stick up for myself. Mm-hmm. I was really proud of myself. So I did it. I felt better. Now I'm having a good weekend. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's not obvious. And I think one of the things that I can do is If I had faced that situation 10 years ago, 20 years ago, let's say, how would I have acted differently? How am I acting differently now than I would have then? And that is one of the only ways that I can really see the recovery in myself. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So what do we got coming up? I've got a conversation in a couple of weeks about dealing with crisis. We've had some emails about crisis. And this person said, yeah, I'd like to talk about how I dealt with some crisis in my life. I don't know exactly what we're going to talk about. We'll find out. We welcome your thoughts. You can join our conversation here. You can leave a voicemail or send us an email with your feedback, your questions. And Lisa, how can people do that? You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707- 8795. Call right now to 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. You can also send a voice memo or email to feedback at therecovery.show. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of recovery and the TV film industry, or any of our upcoming topics. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. 
If you would like advance notice for some of our topics so that you can contribute to that topic, you can sign up for our mailing list by sending an email to feedback at therecovery.show. Put email in the subject line to make it easier to spot. Our website, as you might have gathered, is therecovery.show, where we have information about the show. We have notes for each episode, links to the books that we read from or that we talked about, videos for the music. There are also some links to other recovery podcasts and websites. What is your second song choice, Lisa? My second song choice is the Cal Bears Drinking Song. This song first appeared in 1906. When I was going to college, people would sing this song, and it was all about drinking, drink, tra-la-la, drink, tra-la-la, drink, drink, drunk. And I didn't like it. And everyone was singing the song and drinking, and I'm sorry for people who are listening who love this song, but I feel like I wanted one of my songs that I chose to be about the jovial social communion that is so rampant. So everywhere in our society, people think they're having fun, but to me, it's a real trigger. The song is a real trigger. I just wanted it to be an example of, you you can love people and they can be having fun, but I guess that what I'm trying to say is that alcohol is woven into the fabric of our society in so many different ways. And this is one of the ways that, that music to me like, condones like all this drinking. And I don't know. Mm-hmm. I know people like this song and they have fun with it, but I'm torn because I feel like the song is just saying, go out and get drunk and just party and forget your cares. And it's a reminder of some people can do that, but a lot of people are alcoholic and it's not good for them so trigger warning on that song yeah for sure and now it's time for your voices we got a voicemail from jan hi my name is jan a grateful member of al-anon and this message is responding to the request for sure about al-anon and cancer When I was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, a rare terminal blood cancer, in 2013, I had been in the program for a number of years, and I was at the point where I was reaping the benefits of a loving sponsor, a healthy home group, service involvement, and recovery friends. So the program helped me so much in this experience and still helps me today. I just want to share three things about it, how Al-Anon helped me in my journey and then the things that people did to help me. So three things from Al-Anon. Reaching out. Al-Anon teaches us to reach out, and so I did. Many people had said to me, is there anything I can do? You let me know. Can I help in any way? To receive these words was like a bountiful gift coming towards me. I began to think of ways people could help me instead of automatically saying, so I'm okay, or I'm good, or leaning heavily on my family. At that time, I had weekly chemo at the clinic, so I'd say, can you drive me on Friday for my chemo? And many said yes, and we had these wonderful visits. It made me look forward to Fridays and seeing my friends. I miss them. We took pictures of ourselves at the clinic. So now I have 21 photos of friends and family and me, and this filled my heart. Choices. Elanon teaches us we have choices. Early on in my treatment, I became very sick. 
One night I couldn't quit throwing up and I ended up at the emergency room with my sister in the middle of the night. This led me to choose to write a letter to my medical team stating my concern that this was not an acceptable path. We had a discussion and adjustment was made to my chemo cocktail. I was never at emergency again. I remember a couple of days after this saying to my sister, I don't have to get depressed about this, do I? And she looked at me and she said, I don't think so. And for me, I didn't. I certainly had emotions, grief, fear, anger, and for one long day, terror, which I knew through the program to honor and express. But the program also taught me that feelings aren't facts. They don't stay around long. I knew I had some choices. I knew the journey was going to be tough enough, and I felt empowered through the program to make as many choices as I could because the power over my own body and life seemed to be dwindling fast. I could choose to be present and to be grateful. I couldn't live in those extensive emotions like self-pity, resentment, when every ounce of me has to be dedicated to being as as I could be. I chose not to fight with my medical team and actually often felt a real love for these compassionate people, in particular my oncologist, and often was blessed with many wonderful alternative practitioners at all. With all of these people, I felt the nearness of my higher power. I just counted on my higher power to be with me in this. I didn't know the outcome, but I knew whatever happened, Mother God would be with me. This present helped me so much to not feel alone and to rest easy and to live life on life's terms. I didn't take it personally that I'd been diagnosed with cancer. I didn't feel it was some kind of mean lesson. Indeed, my oncologist said, you didn't cause this and you can't cure it. Sound familiar? I didn't take it personally, and that is the teaching I just treasure from Al-Anon. Let it begin with me. At the time I was diagnosed, I had an estrangement with someone close to me, and I thought I cannot go through this with an estrangement with these superior, resentful, very smug feelings I have. So I called this person, which shocked them, and asked if they would accompany me for my first official visit to the sleep clinic. They said yes right away, and they came to the appointment with all this research they had done about every medication I was going to go on. And they also brought pages of research about multiple myeloma. This healing was an amazing gift. People are amazing. Let it begin with me. A meeting on wheels during treatment, a member from my home group phoned me to say, we're bringing a meeting to your home. So three friends showed up to my home on a good day for me, and we had a mini meeting. How beautiful. I was feeling cut off from life, but to see my friends and to share our program together gave me a boost that lasted a long time. I still chuckle when I think back to my friend announcing after reading the opening, and the topic today is gratitude. <laughs> it was very Al-Anon. Friends within Al-Anon and outside Al-Anon did many things to help me. And when people said I was in their prayer, it meant the world to me. That's not a small thing. The cards and the handwritten messages meant more to me than I could ever say. There are some things I could read again and again. I live alone with my dog, so the visits with food and gifts and a quick hello lifted my spirits. One time, a young friend came to visit me, and she asked me my advice on something she was going through. And that stands out because she could truly see me as more than a sick person. Another person expressed a great interest in the stem cell transplant that was coming up for me. 
and that lifted my spirit. Her curiosity meant the world to me. I didn't feel like such a freak. Each act of kindness, large and small, made me feel loved and remembered and held in the presence of God within the higher power. People kept me going. And through the power of Al-Anon and my higher power, I was able to receive and accept all this love and compassion. Thank you so much for the recovery show and for this opportunity to share my journey. Jan, thank you for sharing that personal story and how Al-Anon helped you when you were dealing with your own cancer diagnosis and treatment. Thank you. Tanya wrote, Dear Spencer, I have just listened to your share on loss and grief in episode 386 and felt an overwhelming need to express my gratitude to you for sharing your recovery and your guest's recovery through the recovery show. The show has helped me immensely, at times just to calm down and pause, and at times to really listen and learn. My mom has dementia that has been progressing gradually in the last years, and this year she needed more care than she could get at home. The care home she is now in is small, wonderful, and she is happy and settled. However, moving her there was very, very difficult and painful. I keep thinking that with the excellent care she is getting, she will get better, and then we can move her back home, and she can return to being the funny, intelligent, and loving mom and grandma she was before she got sick. I also feel guilty that I am not able to spend more time with her in this part of her life. I live an eight-hour flight away in another country. I am married to a still-drinking alcoholic, and we have two children, 11 and 13. I joined Al-Anon five years ago, unable to cope with my life anymore. Al-Anon has saved my life, revealing to me, little by little, many truths I refuse to accept, and also how much beauty there is to appreciate in my life. Most significantly, returning to my childhood home as I was working my fourth step helped me to realize that I grew up in a family that was struggling with the disease of alcoholism. Alcohol was a central theme of family life. I was serving beers and making gin and sodas from age five or six. But I never realized that the disease of alcoholism was the dis-ease, the frequent, sudden, unpredictable switches from idyllic contentment to unbearable tension and fear I associated with family life from as early as I can remember. Now I understand that my dad was an alcoholic, my mom an Al-Anon. The beautiful thing about discovering this through Al-Anon is that I am learning to forgive my parents and recognize that they were trying their best. Also, I am not a faulty model, hopelessly unable to cope with life on life's terms. I can recover. As I slowly work through the steps with my sponsor, I am beginning to see myself more realistically, and as our welcome says, I am finding more and more that it is possible to find contentment and even happiness, whether the alcoholic is still drinking or not and that as we put our problem in its true perspective, we find it loses its power to dominate our thoughts and our lives. As you shared, I can see so many parallels in the symptoms of dementia and alcoholism, and also many similarities in my reactions to these symptoms. When you spoke of taking the time to sort through your parents' belongings and appreciate them as they were as whole people before dementia took them really moved me. My mom has been so changed by the disease. Her home is empty now, and soon I will need to decide how to take care of it and the many memories of parents and grandparents held within. I have been unable to think or feel. I have been distracting myself, escaping to avoid the tremendous emotional pain, and unable, unwilling to surrender it. 
Listening to your words allowed me to feel the grief I have. The tears rolled, and I let the pain rise. Once again, this program is gently showing me the truth. I pray to be willing to ask for the serenity to accept what I cannot change, the courage to change what I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thank you so much, Spencer, for all that you do. I'm so grateful. Tanya. Thank you, Tanya, for writing. I know that from personal experience that watching a loved one succumb to dementia is never easy. And the hope that, yeah, they could just get better might still have been there, although reality was pretty clear that it wasn't happening. I wish you the best. Diana sent a voice memo. Hi, everybody. It's Diana from Nevada. I haven't shared in a while, but this is for the people who are dealing with guilt, shame, and blame or abuse towards self. If you're somebody who expects and demands perfection from yourself, if you're somebody that is an overthinker, harshly critical of your own decisions and not really living in the moment, never really feeling good enough. If you think that if I do X, Y, Z, then fill in the blank would love or prioritize me, that you would inspire them to get off the drugs that somehow the fact that they don't get off the drugs is tied to your worthiness, which is ridiculous, but that is what goes on in the mind of a child who has a parent who deals with addiction. So I'm learning to put the responsibility onto the other person and understand that they failed. I was the child. I became very comfortable in putting the blame on myself because I was used to taking responsibility for everything, including things out of my control. One time my mom had invited a junkie into our home and he stole all our jewelry. And mom ended up hitting me and blaming him for the theft. If she disappeared, I was made responsible for tracking her. Or why didn't you call? Why didn't you do? It was just this over overly responsible child, very anxious and fearful and guilt and shame and blame, just constant factors in my story. So I've had to learn how to honor my feelings. I did write a book called Burn Into Crazy, and I told my experience as I experienced it. It was honoring myself. It was liberating. But still that thread of shame and guilt, hard because I felt responsible to care for my qualifier, that it was somehow my duty to fix or hide or protect. And what I've discovered is that hiding is a form of dysfunction because in transparency, it keeps people honest and accountable to their actions that my experience and feelings I, I should never have to apologize for. It will cause other people to feel sad or mad. But nonetheless, I'm learning that I am, what's the word I'm looking for? not justified, but that my feelings matter, that I'm not held responsible for their actions. And I have to say that in being transparent, it actually improves the relationship from my standpoint. When you stop hiding, stop making things not be seen because you're afraid, let them feel that. And I think sometimes people in their addiction, the more they feel that, the more they are driven to fix it because there's nothing that we can do. When I came out and told my story, it was shocking. And 
I wasn't hiding away. And for the first time, in a sense, it helped relationships because my mom understood me. People in my life finally were like, oh, this is who she is. This is what she's going through. So that's what I would encourage you guys who are living with that guilt, shame, and blame. Work toward healing your self-esteem, validating your feelings, understand that you matter and that you're not responsible for other people, what they do, what they say, how they act, how they behave. Thank you again, Spencer, for all you do. Bye. Diana, thank you for sharing your experience, strength, and hope around guilt, shame, and blame, and self-abuse. Thank you so much. Kate writes, Hi, Spencer. Thank you for your service. Another podcast your listeners might find helpful is Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families, Voices Across America. I think that's the title of the podcast, Voices Across America. These recordings are about 45-minute speaker meetings, sharing experience, strength, and hope of persons of all ages and backgrounds focused on the 12 steps of ACA. I listen to this as well as the recovery show. Many thanks, Kate S., and thank you, Kate, for suggesting that. I will put a link in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 388. Anonymous sent a letter. Hello there. I love your podcast and stumbled upon it about a year ago. I've been in Al-Anon for almost two years now. My husband has been sober for over a year and is a self-proclaimed alcoholic who is working his own recovery in AA. He did a 30-day stint in rehab. We both come from alcoholic families. Loved your recent podcast, Co. Crazy. I am a recovering codependent and I am surrounded by them. I second what someone said on the podcast. Can you please do a podcast on how to live with new sobriety? I know there isn't a how-to guide, but I would love some assistance on this. Although my husband is working AA and is very dedicated to going to meetings every day, I still find myself wanting him to do more. I wish he would see his own therapist to work on the issues that led him to being an alcoholic. He claims that's what they do in AA, but I have lots of arguments for that point. We see a couple's therapist every other week, and it's helping but I also feel like we are just on this merry-go-round because neither of us wants to budge on our issues. We are trying little by little, though. I see my own therapist, but not as much as I'd like to. She's expensive, and I know it would benefit me to find a new one that doesn't cost as much. I attend to one to three Al-Anon meetings a week and have recently dabbled in ACA. Lots of recovery to do on both sides, but I know with your help, Al-Anon and reading and journaling, I can continue to focus on myself my own healing, and live and let live. Thanks, Anonymous from Massachusetts. I think you answer part of your own question there, which is focus on your own healing, live and let live, let your husband focus on his healing. That has worked pretty well in my marriage, that we each are following our own path to recovery. We're not getting in each other's business is sort of a, a rude way to put it, but you know that's what it's about. It has worked for me and my wife. Suzanne left a comment on the co-crazy episode number 387. I have been listening to your show since I joined Al-Anon in December 2012. I so value your comment about using a variety of resources once you have crossed over to the recovery forest. I identify with a lot that Spencer shares as I'm originally from Rochester, New York and moved to Portland, Oregon one week before Mount St. Helens blew. For anyone with experience with Eastman Kodak and or photography, I would like to mention a movie on Netflix called Kodachrome. Thank you so much for your service in hosting new podcasts. 
Thanks for writing, Suzanne. And man, December 2012, I mean, that's when we started. So since the beginning, wow. And I'm going to check out that movie. And every time I see the word Kodachrome or see a Kodachrome slide, of course, that Paul Simon song comes to mind. Such nice, bright colors. Aaron comments on episode 355, which was titled A Son's Addiction. Hi, first time listening. My son is 18 and in active addiction. I've just started to attend meetings. Thank you for sharing this story. I so understand the feelings of this father. My son has been struggling since age 13. And then there's a heart. Aaron, my heart goes out to you. My children seem to have ducked this disease, but they've had their own issues and struggles, and it's so not easy. Thanks for writing. Anonymous asks, how do I call this number from Australia, as I am not getting through even with area code? When I had Esther on the show in the last time, it was episode 374 about my recovery is not dependent on somebody else's, something like that. She read out the phone number that she would call from Australia as plus one seven three four seven zero seven eight seven nine five. There are a couple of other options that don't involve the cost of an international phone call. If you've got a smartphone, an iPhone, an Android, probably has an app for recording voice memos. And on the iPhone, it's got the absolutely original name of Voice Memos. You can record yourself using that app and then email the file to feedback at therecovery.show. I think it may be the, the easiest way to get a call to me. I also subscribe to a service that lets you record a message directly from your computer or smartphone, although I don't recommend using it on a smartphone. Use the voice memo app instead. On the website at therecovery.show, you should see a button that says send a voice message and you click on it and it pops up a panel with a button to start recording. You can only record up to 90 seconds at a time and you can submit multiple messages, of course. It does give you the opportunity to review what you've recorded before sending it. We got a review on Apple Podcasts from Me 2345 who writes, Thank you. Your podcast has been my go-to ever since I discovered it. I've learned so much and found such comfort in your episodes and cannot express how much I appreciate the time and effort you give to this project. You really make a difference in my journey to understand and survive my two qualifiers, as well as understand myself and why I reacted as I did. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much for the review. Reviews might help somebody who's thinking about listening to the podcast to decide to do so. Thank you. Kay commented on the episode number 377, whether the alcoholic is still drinking or not. I have listened to this show at least eight times. It totally speaks to my heart. So comforting to know of other families struggling with the isms of this horrible disease. The question, what if I die, validates the reason to detach without guilt. And all the time my husband and I have wasted on trying to put a band-aid on the issue, only to make us feel better. We love our son. Thank you to both you and Nancy in Florida that has given the strength and encouragement I need. Kay says, I live in Naples, Florida, and would like to reach out to Nancy if possible. Thank you again. I did forward Kay's email to Nancy, and I think they're in touch. So that's cool. Got a, another review on Apple Podcasts from Snowmom17, titled Tip Towing into Al-Anon. 
I want to thank you for continuing to put out this amazing podcast. To be honest, I should definitely be in Al-Anon, probably since birth. My fear and perfectionist personality persuade me to believe I'm fine. Haha, <laughs> joke's on me. I plan on attending an in-person meeting in the near future. Without this podcast, I would never even consider searching for one in my area. I'm so grateful. And Snow Mom, I hope you've found one by now. And if not, I'm going to keep on encouraging you to do so. Jess left us a voicemail. Hello, I'm Jess, a first-time sharer. I've been listening to the recovery show consistently for the past few months, and it's helped me feel more comfortable and is beginning to attend al meetings. Thank you. I'm responding to a few things from episode 387, Co-Crazy. I appreciated Molly's request for more information about sibling qualifiers. My brother is, was one of my qualifiers. For many years, I was so resistant to thinking I needed Al-Anon because we didn't have a close relationship. I was more focused on supporting my mom, who was his primary caretaker. In January 2020, though, I finally was coming around to the idea that Al-Anon could be for me and that I was allowed to reach out for support despite our troubled relationship. I had made a nearest resolution to start attending Al-Anon meetings and began searching for resources for siblings of alcoholics. Like Molly said, so much is focused on parents and spouses. Thank you for saying that, Molly. It was affirming to hear that I just wasn't a lousy researcher and there isn't much out there for siblings. I found one book, which I read called Sober Sibling, How to Help Your Alcoholic Brother or Sister and Not Lose Yourself by Patricia Olson. But because of where my brother was in his addiction, it felt like I found the book too late. My brother passed away in July 2020 from complications of his alcoholism. It wasn't until then that I truly realized the immensity of our relationship as siblings and how deeply his life of alcoholism impacted me. I'd connected with a former coworker who shared with me that her brother is an alcoholic. There's a lot of similarities in our family dynamic. I passed along the books to her and it seemed to help. Even more so, talking to her about my journey with my brother and my recovery process has been helpful to me. Hearing where she's at now is a reminder at how deeply challenging living with addiction is and how far I've come in my recovery since he passed away. And with the echo Molly's request for more topics specifically related to siblings. The fact that my sibling's addiction and end of life was so tragic, I have a lot of anxiety around other people's relationships with alcohol. I tend to go to worst case scenarios and that's something I'm working on. And I'm getting a lot of practice because my staff has finally come to terms with her alcoholism and just came home from a residential treatment program. I too want to echo the person who shared in the same episode that having an episode dedicated to early days of recovery and sobriety would be very helpful. And also the other person who shared on requesting a topic around intimacy and healthy communication. For me, all of those topics are intersecting and are heavy on my heart. Thank you again for creating this space. It's been hugely helpful. Thank you, Jess. I would love to do another show featuring the experience, strength, and hope of Eleanor members whose siblings are at least part of the reason you're here. And as I have said, I really can't do it myself because that's not my lived experience. You know, we can do this in a number of ways. I it can put together preferably voice shares that several people have recorded and sent in, or I can read your emails, but you know, so much better in your voice, in my opinion. Or if you would like to be a guest host on the podcast, sharing your experience, strength, and hope about how Alanon has helped you to live with the alcoholism or addiction of your sibling, we can do that for one or more people who would like to 
to come on. So let me know. This really uh, depends on, on you, the listener, to share, because I can't do it. Anne comments on episode 347, titled, If I Am Not the Problem, There Is No Solution. Anne writes, Spencer and Eric, this episode is brilliant. It is so rich in so many topics into which I need to take a deep dive. Looking at the show notes for it, I realize how much I've been missing in each podcast. She says, this is the first episode I've looked at the show notes. I especially like the poetry connections that give me new avenues to explore. Thank you for all the preparation for these shared podcasts, as well as the follow-up work involved in production. Forever grateful. Thanks, Anne, and I also forwarded that to Eric. Lisa, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing your experience, strength, and hope. What is your last song that we can go out on? The third song I really want to go out on is You Are So Beautiful by Joe Cocker. This song makes me cry sometimes when I listen to it because it really, to me, is looking at an alcoholic that we love and really accepting and learning to have compassion for what they've gone through and how we feel about them. Because when I first came to Al-Anon, they said, we don't judge you for who you love. Looking at somebody and saying, you are so beautiful, and hearing those words, it's like you can look at somebody with all their imperfections, with their disease of alcoholism, with all their stuff that they bring, if they have mental illness, whatever it is, and just see how beautiful they are. That's why I love this song, and I think that's probably one of the core teachings to me of Al-Anon is that we can love who we love and we can see the true essence of who they are and everyone is beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for listening and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace growing you one day at a time.